Today on the show, we are talking about the iconic amphibian Coolasuchus clelandi. If you haven't heard of it before, don't worry. I'm going to bring you up to speed on the animal that was voted in as Victoria's state fossil emblem. Pals and Paleo presents Coolasuchus. Let's go back in time. Let's explore and see what we can find. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land throughout Australia, in particular the Bunurong people and recognize their connections to land, sea, and community. Pals and Paleo pays respects to the elders past, present, and emerging and extends that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This episode was recorded on Koa Country in Winton, Central Western Queensland, and fossils of Kulosukas were found on Bunwurrung Country near San Remo in southeast Victoria. This is Pals in Paleo, your friendly neighbourhood paleontology podcast. I'm your host, paleontologist and PhD student Adele Pentland. You can stay up to date with the show by following us on Instagram at Pals in Paleo, spelt P-A-L-A-E-O. Before we wade into the murky waters of coastal Victoria some 125 million years ago, We've got to warm things up and start off with our random fossil fact. Sometimes the random fossil fact is somewhat related to the main topic of each episode, but today I went rogue and wanted to bring you something completely different. Today's random fossil fact is on an ichthyosaur from the Jurassic with what look like fossilized red and white blood cells. You know those tiny cells in our blood that transport oxygen and fight off infection and disease? Yeah, it's pretty mind-blowing stuff. This exceptional fossil was collected from the Posidonia Shale in southwest Germany. The site is a pretty famous fossil site and is what's known as a fossil Lagerstatt. Sorry, my German is terrible. Uh, I didn't study in high school, much to the disgust and disappointment of my mother. Um, But that word basically means... There's heaps of fossils that are beautifully preserved, even down to the microscopic level. Specifically, this team of researchers studied a specimen of the Jurassic ichthyosaur Stenotrygius, which was preserved in a concretion. The easiest way for me to think of a concretion is it's a bit like a chocolate-covered almond. Uh, That's not very scientific. The more scientific analogy is to think of a pearl. So it actually starts off as a grain of sand, and then it gets coated and coated in layers. So a concretion, I suppose, it's a type of rock which forms around a fossil, and in some cases, roughly follows the general shape of the fossil on the inside. Again, I kind of prefer my chocolate-covered almond uh, analogy, um, but that's probably because I'm often prone to getting distracted by food. This fossil was snap frozen in this concretion and using a special type of microscope, a scanning electron microscope, they studied one of the vertebrae. This single bone was jam-packed full of information. Not only did they find red and white blood cell-like structures using this high-powered microscope, they were also able to extract cholesterol. Based on the relatively small size of the red blood cells and the carbon isotopes of the cholesterol, 
Stenopterygius was adapted for diving into the depths of the ocean. The reason why they think this is because deep ocean environments have less oxygen compared to marine reefs that are close to the surface. But if you have many small red blood cells, that would provide a lot more surface area for oxygen to stick onto compared with if you had lots of big red blood cells. Ichthyosaurs more generally are also known for having relatively large eyes, which would have helped them see in the deep, dark depths of the ocean where sunlight struggles to penetrate. There isn't a lot of plants that can grow below the photic zone, so Stenopterygius was likely hunting and actively pursuing prey. This research was published in Nature in 2017 by Plett and colleagues, and I first learned about it last year in 2022 when one of the co-authors of the paper, Professor Cleti Grice, gave a presentation at one of our dinosaur digs in Winton. Before that, I had absolutely no idea you could study fossil cholesterol and related molecules in fossil specimens, or that red and white blood cells, or at the very least, the shape of those cells could preserve in fossils so old. Just to put this in perspective, the ichthyosaur they studied is Jurassic in age. So for this particular geologic formation, that makes it 182.7 million years old. You know that phrase, like, as old as the hills? Well, this fossil is even older than the hills that we have round home. Like, it, it's just nuts. I really wanted to plug this research because, one, it's it's insanely cool cutting-edge science, and two, I'm currently trying to work with Professor Cleti Grice and her lab at Curtin University, so I'm in this very interesting transition phase at the moment where I'm trying to move from one university to another. My project is more or less going to stay the same. I'm going to continue working on pterosaurs. Uh, but the plan is, yeah, to finish my PhD up at Curtin and hopefully dip my toes into the wonderful world of geochemistry, shoot some lasers at some fossil specimens and learn about the environment and how these animals live their lives based on these lab results. So I'm pretty excited for that. Of course, we can learn a lot about a fossil just from studying its form to learn how it functioned within its environment. And on that note, let's get into the form, function, and family groupings of the star of today's episode, Coolasuchus clelandii. Okay, so since Coolasuchus belongs to an extinct order of amphibians called Temnospondyls, We'll start with form so we can get familiar with what this animal looks like, and then we'll talk about its role in the ancient Cretaceous forests of Victoria. The amphibians that are alive today, frogs, salamanders, and newts, are relatively small, at least in our eyes. Amphibians haven't always been small, though. If we go back millions of years ago, there were massive amphibians. Temnospondyls are an ancient group of amphibians, and their fossils are best known from the Carboniferous, Permian, and Triassic periods. Most went extinct by the end of the Triassic, but there are a few Jurassic and Cretaceous temnospondyls that hung around. Spoiler alert, even among temnospondyls, Coelosuchus is a weird one, and possibly one of the last members of this now extinct order of amphibians. 
Throughout their evolutionary history, which is more than 200 million years, Temnus bundles just about conquered every aquatic environment available to them, including fresh water, they ventured into coastal marine waters, and they're known from terrestrial environments. Since these are amphibians, though, they would have needed to return to the water in order to lay their eggs, since they don't have a hard shell, and if they had them on land, then they'd basically just dry out and they wouldn't hatch. I mentioned before that Temnus bundles are giant amphibians, but let's talk about what they look like so we know how to spot Coolosuchus. Coolosuchus looks a bit like a salamander on steroids, and I say that with the utmost respect and love because this extinct amphibian is named after two people I have worked with in the past and I greatly admire and respect them. I'll get to the science behind the name of this creature in a sec, but I've still got to paint you a word picture and explain what the hell this thing looks like. Okay, so it has four legs in a sprawling gait. So imagine the way a lizard runs around. It's sort of poised, ready to do a push-up at all times. More power to them. Uh, so a bit like a lizard with their legs held out to the sides. Kulosuchus is sometimes shown with a big old tadpole tail. But just keep in mind, we, we don't actually know that much about the anatomy of the tail. However, this is an animal that did spend a lot of time in the water, so it makes sense that it would have a powerful tail adapted for swimming and propelling itself through water. We see this today with modern crocs. Um, in fact, if you look up on YouTube, you can find videos shot underwater. I think there's one in particular I'm thinking of. It's like a saltwater croc. Anyway, it's front feet are lifted off the muddy bottom and its back feet are touching down every so often but the tail is doing most of the work uh, and I believe it's called punting it's called punting around in the water it's very cool you should look it up um, but yeah it, it, this is a little bit easier to do when you have a pointy croc snout, uh, which Coolosuchus does not have. Okay, so the business end of the animal. Coolosuchus has a round head, which is about as big as a wheelie bin lid, which if you're not from Australia, that's what we call our rubbish bins. Uh, if you still have no idea what I'm talking about, their head is about the size of a toilet seat. The total length of the body was approximately three meters, or that's where some of the big estimates are at. So three meters or 9.8 feet. And this animal would have weighed about 500 kilograms or 1,100 pounds. If Coolosuchus was alive today... I reckon its common name would be, I don't know, something like the giant shovel-headed newt, something like that. Um, even though, yes, it's not a newt, but in my defense, common names are often a bit misleading and more descriptive rather than actually accurate. Um, but anyway, not only did Coolosuchus have a big, broad head, unlike most amphibians you're familiar with, Coolosuchus has some pretty serious-looking teeth. These teeth are roughly spike-shaped and have grooves and ridges. These ridges aren't vertical and straight either. If you look closely at them, they're more like a maze, which is why Coolosuchus and other related amphibians used to be called labyrinthodonts. But more on that in a minute. As paleontologist and fossil preparator Leslie Cool explains, these ridges and grooves are part of the tooth itself. If you look at a cross-section through one of these teeth under the microscope, the enamel is sort of enfolded, very much like a maze. 
These teeth and the way they sit in the lower jaws or mandibles also makes it easy to distinguish Coelosuchus from dinosaurs, as Leslie explains. I started exposing the top of the jaw and exposing the teeth. And once the teeth were exposed, we realised quite quickly that they weren't dinosaur teeth. They were obviously growing out of the top of the jaw. They weren't in sockets. At this point, you're probably thinking to yourself, OK, Adele, it's a big salamander with a big pancake head, big whoop. Coelosuchus and temnospondyls in general are kind of weird on the outside, but wait, they get even weirder on the inside. You know how most bone is, like, smooth in texture? Yeah, nah. Temnospondyl skulls are weirdly textured, and by weirdly textured, I mean... It kind of looks like if Spider-Man shot his web at it. So the bones themselves aren't that weird in terms of their shape, but the outer surface has a series of ridges that spread out and are connected kind of like threads on a spider web. If that sounds like complete and utter hogwash to you, or you're not familiar with Spider-Man or Silly String, but you do know a thing or two about the cranial anatomy of crocodile skulls, Leslie's explanation and comparison will hopefully make a bit more sense to you. And then, of course, once I started working down the side of the jaw, coming across all that amazing ornamentation, which is very much like the ornamentation you see on the jaw of a crocodile, as soon as I saw that and told my colleagues, uh, we all, all got very excited and realising that this could possibly be a, uh, well, at the time we called it a labyrinthodont because that was the terminology back in the 1990s. Uh, that's now, of course, changed and they're now called tenless bondles. But, um, yeah, once I exposed some of the ornamentation, we knew we had something different. Okay, so I wasn't planning on getting into this, but since Leslie brought it up, let's talk a bit about what labyrinthodonts are. Labyrinthodont is a term that isn't used a hell of a lot these days, but essentially, if it was extinct, four-legged, and lived like a croc, it was considered a labyrinthodont. So it's a group of animals, but nowadays we use the term temnospondyl instead. Labyrinthodont literally refers to the gnarly texture on the teeth. Like the rest of the skull, they are highly ornamented. And in fact, labyrinthodont literally means maize tooth. In case you're wondering, the reason behind this taxonomic rebrand is because labyrinthodonts are what's called a paraphyletic group. So it's a group that includes animals that look similar, but they're not all that closely related. The most famous paraphyletic group is Reptilia, so that includes turtles, tuatara from New Zealand, lizards, snakes, crocs, and dinosaurs. But it gets complicated because we now know that some dinosaurs had feathers. And birds are dinosaurs. So that means Reptilia is kind of a grab bag term. What I'm trying to say here is that paraphyletic groups aren't super scientific. So it's considered best practice to avoid them where possible. And for that reason, I'll be referring back to Coelosuchus as a type of temnospondyl from here on out. Coelosuchus glielandii was described and named in 1997 by Anne Warren, Tom Rich, and Pat Vickersrich. 
And honestly, who better to describe this incredible fossil than an expert in temnospondyls? Once the jaws were prepared, they were then given to Dr Anne Warren at La Trobe University, who is an expert in temnospondyls. And in fact, it took her, she said, about three months to convince herself Firstly, that they were temnospondyls, and secondly, that the two jaws actually came from the same individual because they were preserved so totally differently. Part of the reason why they look so different is because the jaws were no longer in situ or in their life position. They had actually moved relative to one another. And this was something that Mike Cleland, the person who discovered the holotype specimen of Kulosuchus, noticed when he found that fossil on the beach. They were not in the position that they would have been in real life. They had become slightly disarticulated and one was crossed over the other. Still, despite the challenges of preparing this fossil, it was well worth it. Not only did it represent a new species, but it extended the Temnospondyl fossil record by millions of years. And as Leslie points out, it's pretty different compared to the other fossils known from the Cretaceous of Victoria. Once I started, I realised that we had something which was much bigger than we'd ever found before and something that we'd never found before. So it was pretty exciting. Pals and Paleo will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Dinosaur Trips. Dinosaur Trips are exactly what they sound like. Each itinerary gets you up close and personal with experts and gives you backstage access into the world of paleontology, visiting museums from across the world, and even getting you onto real-life dinosaur digs. There's a bunch of trips running in 2024. Alberta Badlands and Beyond is back, and so's Badlands Family Adventure. Personally, I'm eyeing off the trip to Arizona and California because I'm dying to see the La Brea tar pits, but then again, I'm also tempted to travel to Patagonia. To learn more about the 2024 trips, you can check out their website, dinosaurtrips.com, and sign up to their newsletter to be the first to find out about the new trips. And you can email Zach on zach at dinosaurtrips.com, and Zach is spelt Z-A-C-H. It's been 66 million years. Why wait any longer? Join Dinosaur Trips on the adventure of a lifetime. If you're interested in reading the paper which named Colossuchus as a new species, this paper is publicly available and in open access. Just go into Google Scholar, or do what I do, <laughs> you type Google Scholar into Google, and then search for Colossuchus, and it'll pop up at the top. Even if you don't like super science terms, but you're interested in seeing what the fossil itself looked like, there are some gorgeous illustrations of the holotype specimen, And if you live in Melbourne or are planning on visiting soon, you can see this in person. So I believe Kulosuchus, it's on the first floor alongside the other Australian fossils, not too far away from their new superstar Triceratops specimen. As I mentioned before, Kulosuchus was named in honour of two kick-ass amazing Australian paleontologists. They are Leslie Cool and Michael Cleland. 
Leslie and Mike have made some incredible contributions to paleontology down in Victoria. Mike, being a local on Phillip Island, he spent heaps of time prospecting for fossils along the Cretaceous coasts. And Leslie has prepared countless fossils in conjunction with Melbourne Museum. Just recently, Leslie was also awarded an Order of Australia in recognition for her years of work and contributions made to the field of paleontology. They've both been involved with the Dinosaur Dreaming digs for years and years. Uh, Leslie's been a dig coordinator and organizer, and Mike's been on, uh, I don't know how many digs he would have been on. Mike has also dedicated a lot of time to showing school groups what to look for when prospecting along the Victorian coasts, how to avoid cliff falls and stay safe, and working on other outreach programs. They've both achieved so much, and it's hard not to think of them when Kulosuchus comes up in conversation. Here's what it was like when Mike discovered his most important fossil to date, the holotype specimen of Kulosuchus clelandii. Mike had been finding fossils along the coastline for over a year uh, at that time. And when he said he'd found something that he thought was pretty exciting, uh, a group of us decided to go down because uh, it looked like we were going to have to cut a fairly large block out of the rock. When I first found Kulosuchus, I initially thought it was a tree. I thought it was a big piece of petrified wood. I'd never seen a fossil bone that big. So it took a while to convince myself that it actually was a piece of fossil bone. And it wasn't until I got down on hands and knees and actually had a close look at it through the magnifying glass that I could see the labyrinthine infolding exposed in the cross sections through the teeth. And that was the thing that finally convinced me that it was actually a jawbone of a temnospondyl amphibian. So Mike found the holotype specimen, which defines the species Coolosuchus. And a little bit of a tangent on Mike. Um, so I'm doing my PhD at the moment, and I, I recently had some fossils on loan from Melbourne Museum. Anyway, I was looking through them and on a few of the specimen labels. Lo and behold, some of those bones were found and donated by Mike. The funny thing is, though, some of those bones were donated like a couple of years before I was born. But yeah, the Colosuchus clelandii holotype specimen is arguably the biggest contribution he's made to date. Anything we think might be Colosuchus must be compared against that holotype specimen. But we actually have multiple fossils for this species. And the first was discovered in 1978 by the Tim Flannery, who is best known for his work as an environmentalist and later went on to become Australian of the Year. Flannery found this piece of bone embedded in the rock, which he extracted and brought into the museum in Melbourne for analysis. And for a long time, nobody was able to identify it. It appeared to be a fragment of a jawbone, but it had unusual markings on it reminiscent of a temnospondyl amphibian and for a long time nobody was prepared to accept that it could have been a temnospondyl amphibian jawbone because they were presumed to be extinct. Uh, eventually subsequent discoveries have shown that there really were many uh, examples of Cretaceous temnospondyls uh, here in South Gippsland and that Flannery actually found the first of them. <laughs> 
because that first specimen that was discovered was quite fragmentary, it couldn't positively be identified. And to be honest, no one was expecting to find evidence of this ancient lineage of amphibians, the Temnospondyls, in the Cretaceous, because they were thought to have gone extinct millions and millions of years beforehand. So no one really knew what to do with this weird bone. It sat around in the collections at Melbourne Museum for almost two decades, uh, but it was in the back of everyone's minds because it had the unforgettable nickname Gok. But I'll let Mike explain what that means. I'd heard about the Gok. The Gok is an acronym of G-O-K, which stands for God Only Knows. But the Gok is only 30 or 40 centimetres long. What I found at Rowles Beach was 67 centimetres long or so. So I realised at the time that this was not only significantly bigger than what Tim Flannery had found, but could actually turn out to be a new species. And of course, as we all know now, it was in fact a new species and an incredibly important one at that. The name Coolasuchus clearlandii honours both Mike and Leslie, but there's a bit more to it than that. I thought it was very fitting to have Coolasuchus clearlandii named jointly after myself and Leslie Cool. Leslie, as the person who did the preparation, and myself who actually found the type specimen, I do point out that Leslie did most of the work. It didn't take long to actually find the thing. I was doing a day or two a week uh, prospecting in the area, but Leslie spent weeks and weeks and weeks on end preparing the jawbones of Coolasuchus, which eventually became the type specimen. Coolasuchus clearlandii is a bit of a play on words. Uh, the cool bit refers to Leslie Cool, who did the preparation, managed to extract the bones out of the rock. It also refers to cool climate, because at the time that it was alive, uh, Australia was still uh, down on the edge of Antarctica, so it would have been a much cooler climate than what we're experiencing today. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, as of 2022, Coolasuchus was voted in as Victoria's state fossil emblem. The win came as a surprise to both Leslie and Mike, but they couldn't be prouder. It was quite a thrill to have Coolasuchus selected as Victoria's fossil emblem. I thought that Coolasuchus is really just a cold-blooded, slimy-skinned amphibian that wouldn't really captured the public imagination, but perhaps for those reasons, it actually has. I think the whole process of selecting a state fossil kind of helped lift some spirits, and it was a really welcome distraction uh, since the campaign launched at the height of COVID when Melbourne and other parts of Victoria were in the midst of a pretty intense lockdown. I realise that not everyone loves fossils as much as I do, but I think, you know, getting people involved and getting them learning about fossils that are found in Victoria was a really welcome reprieve during what was a tough time. All in all, there were 12 fossils shortlisted, which people could vote for. Uh, don't worry, I won't list them all here, but keep an ear out. I might do an episode on another one of the nominees very soon. 
Um, if you've got your phone handy as well, you can still find all 12 nominees on the Melbourne Museum website. I think there was even like a custom Instagram filter that you could use to help you decide to vote if you were unsure. Uh, anyway, we've heard a bit about Kulasukas rising to the top to become Victoria's state fossil emblem. We've talked about the form of this animal, but let's talk more about the function. What is this weird thing doing in the Victorian Cretaceous forests? Anyone who has experience with frogs, or any other amphibian for that matter, may be familiar with the way they eat, i.e. see bug, eat bug. It's safe to assume that prehistoric amphibians approached life in much the same way, which is eating whatever it is they could fit inside their mouth. Unlike a lot of amphibians today, though, Colosuchus had the added advantage of having some seriously gnarly-looking teeth. From memory, some species of frog don't have any teeth at all, and in fact, they use the downward pressure of their eyeballs to push against the roof of their mouth to help them swallow. Honestly, when I first heard that fact, I didn't know whether to be impressed or grossed out. Bit of a weird tangent, but I think you can kind of see where I'm going with this. Imagine yourself face-to-face with an animal up to three meters long with a head as big as a bin lid in an ancient river. Colossuchus was most likely an ambush predator, filling the same ecological niche, yes, I say niche and not niche, or role in its environment as modern-day crocs and gators. The Melbourne Museum stat sheet says that Coolasuchus preyed on small dinosaurs, turtles, and fish. But we don't have direct evidence of this behavior at this stage, so that's our best guess. Since freshwater plesiosaurs are also known at the Dinosaur Cove site, which is where fossils of temnospondyls have been found, it might have also been able to scavenge on these aquatic reptiles and preyed on young plesiosaurs. Even though crocodiles were around in the Cretaceous, it seems that Coolasuchus wasn't feeding on young or juvenile crocs for one simple reason. They did not share the same environment. They did not occupy the same space. Coolasuchus and temnospondyl fossils more broadly are known from several sites on the Victorian coast. I just mentioned before Dinosaur Cove. That's probably the big famous one uh, within our little community anyway. Um, And that is near Cape Otway. There's also a few sites scattered between Cows and Inverloch, uh, which includes the Punchbowl site, Blackhead site and Flat Rocks. Crocs are absent from all of these, but their fossils have been found at sites that are slightly younger in age. So something seems to be going on here. And Warren et al. in 1997 proposed a few different scenarios that might explain what is happening in terms of this this pattern in the distribution of these fossils. Perhaps temnospondyls preferred colder waters and crocs liked it warm, uh, but when the climate warmed up in the lead-up to the Cretaceous Thermal Maximum, then crocs would have been able to occupy more spaces and then there would have been this point where crocs potentially outcompeted Coolasuchus and other temnospondyls. There might have also been some predator-prey relationships going on as well. So these two groups of animals, crocs 
and temnospondyls, they hunted in the same ways, so they would have been competing for food, but it's also possible that crocs might have been feeding on young of Coolosuchus and their eggs and thus decimated their populations. Now that we've talked about the form and function of this animal, before we talk about its family groupings, I actually want to take some time to zoom out and get a glimpse of the bigger picture and talk about the ancient landscape. Dive into what the paleo environment was like 125 million years ago in the early Cretaceous. When Coolasuchus lived in Victoria in southeastern Australia, the earth was a very different place. The bottom end of Australia was at a much higher latitude. And we know this based on paleomagnetic data, which is just a fancy way of saying scientists analyze magnetic rocks and were then able to pinpoint where they formed uh, in relation to the earth. All this to say, Victoria was within the polar circle during the early Cretaceous. There wasn't a permanent ice sheet over the continent, but if you've seen 30 Days of Night, you'll know that living near the poles is intense with or without vampires. Victoria was covered in cool, temperate forests with conifers, ginkgos, ferns, and a bunch of other plants, but they lived there in spite of weeks maybe months of continuous darkness during some parts of the year. On the flip side, there was also periods of continuous sunlight, which is what we see at the North and South Poles today. There really isn't anything like it today. We have these lush green forests teeming with life that survive months of perpetual darkness. Uh, I remember learning about it during undergrad and the idea of these conifer forests populated by dinosaurs, these weird amphibians, pterosaurs, all underneath the aurora australis, the southern lights. Uh, It really just captured my imagination and has stayed with me ever since. I don't know if you can hear this, but it's been raining today and we have a bunch of resident green tree frogs that sort of just camp out in our bathroom and they are going nuts. So I am really bringing you amphibian vibes with this episode. We've talked form, we've talked function, we deviated, we talked about paleo environment. Uh, Let's now dive into the family grouping of Coolosuchus. Like most things we talk about on the show, the broader group which this animal belongs to is extinct. Broadly speaking, Coolosuchus is an amphibian and it belongs to the order Temnospondyli, which is why I've been using the term Temnospondyl throughout. It's basically shorthand for saying it's one of these big amphibians, but we can't really say it's Coolosuchus for certain. More specifically, Coolosuchus belongs to the superfamily Brachiopoidea and is in the family Shigutusauridae. If I've mispronounced either the super family or the family name, by all means, at me. This is one of those situations where I've only seen the word written down. I've never heard it uttered by another human being, so I have no idea whether I've gotten it right or wrong. Run like the wind! Based on what I read in Warren et al., the Brachiopoidia were the only Temnospondyls to survive past the Triassic extinction boundary. So the closest relatives of Coolosuchus are other members within that family, the Chigitusauridae, and after the Triassic, they're only known from parts of the southern supercontinent Gondwana, specifically South America, 
India, and Australia. Before we wrap up, let's talk about some of the pop culture references and the crossovers with Kulasukas. So aside from now being the state fossil for Victoria, Kulasukas rose to fame in 1999 with an appearance in Walking with Dinosaurs. You'd think that as someone who's obsessed with dinosaurs and prehistoric animals now, being born in the early 90s, that Walking with Dinosaurs would be a major staple of my childhood. Right? Wrong. Quite the opposite. For whatever reason, I didn't see it, and I still haven't seen it, um, other than maybe, I think it was the first episode, uh, just because uh, a mate of mine, Caesar, shout out to Caesar, he wanted to watch it when he was staying with us whilst he was doing that placement. If you're keen to watch it yourself, or you just want to relive the glory days walking with dinosaurs, Kulosuchus appears in episode 5, which is called Spirit of the Ice Forests, alongside the ornithopod dinosaurs, Lealanosaura and Matabarasaurus. There's also some pterosaurs in there thrown in for good measure, and the shrew-sized mammal, Sterapodon. I don't think Melbourne Museums sell any Kulosuchus-related merch in their shop, uh, or they didn't the last time I was there, which would have been early, very early 2023, um, which is a bit of a shame uh, because I personally would love cuddling up to a Temnus Bondle plushie. Uh, but there is a Kulosuchus Yowie. If you're not familiar with what a Yowie is, it's a type of chocolate goodie that we have here in Australia. Pretty sure I mentioned it in the Anomalocaris episode, but basically imagine an Easter egg with a capsule inside and then that contains parts of a toy which you then have to assemble. And then it has its own little info sheet on the inside as well. Uh, unlike Walking with Dinosaurs, Yowie was an integral part of my childhood. Uh, we still have all of us somewhere. Um, and even though they stopped making Yowies for a while, they're back again. And they're teaching a new generation of kids to learn and care about animals and the environment. And I could not be more excited. The last pop culture tidbits I have for you actually come from Mike Cleland himself. I have to say, when I first found those jaw bones and when Kulasukras was first described, I had no idea that it was going to become so popular, not only in Victoria, but nationally and internationally. In fact, I see that there's Kulasukras represented on the latest Jurassic World computer game where Kulasukas is actually doing backflips. That's it. That's all I have for you today. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. I'm absolutely spent, but hopefully I've shown you that Australian animals have kept up their deadly reputation for millions of years and given you yet another reason not to go into the water. Don't forget you can find Pals in Paleo on Instagram and check out what Kulasukas looks like. I'll try and post photos of the holotype lower jaws and probably my favourite paleo reconstruction of Kulasukas by the one, the only, Peter Trussler. I've gotten to work with Peter doing some scientific consulting work on the 2022 Dino Stamp and Coin series released by Australia Post and he is a master of his craft. Seriously, he is one of the most dedicated artists I know. I was chatting to a friend, Jack O'Connor, the other day about the Kulasukas Paleo Reconstruction, and apparently Peter's wife cut out hundreds of paper leaves to help him with his painting. Knowing that little fact just makes me love that piece of paleo art even more. 
Peter has Kulosuchus partially submerged in water with ginkgo leaves floating on the surface and the head of the animal cheekily poking out. If you haven't already, do yourself a favour and check it out. Thanks so much for listening and thank you for trusting me with your valuable time. I hope you learned something, or at the very least, you didn't die of boredom. Shoutouts to our wonderful guests on today's episode, Leslie Cool and Mike Cleland, as well as Dr. Anne Warren, Dr. Tom Rich, and Professor Pat Vickers-Rich, and, for that matter, all the Dinosaur Dreaming Dig volunteers. Without your work, we wouldn't have this truly bizarre and otherworldly fossil for Victoria's state emblem. On that note, I'm going to throw to Leslie one last time for a special thank you to the Dinosaur Dreaming Dig volunteers who've helped out over the last 40 years. Without our volunteers, none of this would have happened. You know, Mike and I are certainly very aware that we get a lot of support from a lot of people and uh, we certainly couldn't do it on our own. So it's not just for me, it's for all the hundreds of volunteers that we've had. As someone who has volunteered on Dinosaur Dreaming myself... I couldn't agree with Leslie more. The digs have been so successful because of teamwork. And I want to say thank you to everyone on Dinosaur Dreaming that showed me the ropes in the early days. I super appreciate you making me feel welcome. Thanks so much to Caesar for editing and producing our show. Our theme music is by Hello Kelly and all other tunes are from Hello Kelly. You can check out their latest album, Sweet Nostalgia, on Spotify and just about anywhere you get new music. Again, thanks so much for listening. Pals in Paleo will be back soon with another episode. But until then, keep in touch. Let me know what you think of the show and we'll talk soon.